Welcome everyone to episode 5 of the Curseland Podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. The story of the Bell Witch has been a mainstay around campfires in the Tennessee area for many years. It is considered to be the most well-documented haunting in American history. The real story of the Bell Witch is very interesting and more frightening than any movie ever thought about being. From the website CoolInterestingStuff.com, this is a story titled The Real Bell Witch of Tennessee. In the early 1800s, a man by the name of John Bell decided to follow the lead of many other Americans at the time and seek opportunities out west. He uprooted his family from the Carolinas and moved to the Red River community in Tennessee, present-day Adams, Tennessee. John was very successful in Tennessee. He acquired a large amount of land and a large house in Tennessee to raise his family. He also became a high-ranking official at his local church. His success would unfortunately come with an unbearable price. The haunting did not start until 1817, after the Bells had been settled in their new house for several years. One day, John was inspecting his crops when he spotted something strange in his field. He slowly approached the animal, armed with his gun. The creature was an abomination of nature. It seemed to have the body of a large dog, but with an unusual head that resembled a rabbit. John took several shots at the animal before it got away from him. John thought nothing more of the incident, as guns in that time period were not known for being accurate, so he just assumed he had missed the strange animal. Side note, why do you think wars in this time period were fought where people stood in line and took turns taking shots at each other? It was to increase the chances they would hit something. This is not a joke, but the truth. This is how inaccurate weapons were. That same night, the Bells began hearing strange noises outside of their home. Sometimes, it would sound as if someone was beating on the house from the outside. Other times, it sounded as if an animal was loudly gnawing on something. As the time went by, the Bells frequently began experiencing these noises. Bell men would often rush outside when the noises would start and try to find the source of the disturbances, but to no avail. One day, the noises moved to the inside of the house. The children began claiming that they were hearing the gnawing noises coming from within their rooms and were having trouble sleeping. The activity became more intense when the children began complaining that something was jerking the covers off them and taking their pillows while they had tried to sleep. As time passed, the entity appeared to gain strength. Soon, the family started hearing a faint voice in their homes at night. What the voice was saying was impossible to determine, but it appeared to be the voice of a feeble old woman. The voice eventually became more clear and would sing church songs, quote scripture, and sometimes even took part in conversations, though the voice was always cynical in these discussions. 
The entity even began identifying itself as the witch of Kate Batts, a former neighbor who John had several verbal altercations with after a slave purchase between the two ended badly. Three of John Bell's eldest sons served under General Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812. Jackson, at the time, was mayor of Nashville and was considered a family friend of the Bells. While passing through the Red River area, the future president of the United States decided to visit his old comrades and also satisfy his own curiosity of all the rumors he had been hearing of the witch of the Bell House. Jackson arrived on the Bell property in a horse-pulled wagon accompanied by a group of several war-hardened personal soldiers. While approaching the house, the carriage suddenly halted. The horses struggled to move the wagon, but some unseen force was preventing its progress. Jackson was initially angry. He yelled at his men and cursed at his lazy horses. After a prolonged period of trying to rally his horses into moving the carriage, Jackson finally proclaimed, By the eternal, boys, that must be the Bell Witch. Suddenly, Jackson and his men heard a loud voice laughing and proclaiming that they could proceed. Jackson was startled and cautiously approached the Bell Estate. Side note. Those who know their history would know that if a human had stopped Jackson's carriage, he would have shot him. So this entity startling a man as hardened as Jackson is indeed impressive. Jackson eventually made it into the home of John Bell, in which the two friends began chatting. They discussed the pressing matters of the time period, like what to do about the violent Indians protesting westward expansion and the economic collapse of 1819, when suddenly one of Jackson's men jokingly stated that he was a witch hunter and could rid John Bell of his ghost. The Bell Witch did not take kindly to this and physically beat the man before all who were present. Jackson's men were now terrified. They begged and pleaded with Jackson to leave the Bell Estate and find a different place to camp for the night. Jackson, instead of being frightened by the situation, seemed to be intrigued and insisted that they stay the night. The next morning, Jackson and his men were spotted in the next town over from Red River. It is unclear whether or not any other paranormal activity was inflicted upon Jackson and his men. John Bell was a prominent figure in the South. He did not want word to get out that he and his family believed that a ghost was haunting them, but he soon had no choice but to confide in someone when the ghost became brutally violent toward his youngest daughter, Betsy. The entity would often pull the poor girl's hair and slap her repeatedly, leaving welts and handprint marks on her face and body. One night, the witch even tied Betsy's hair to the bedpost. This caused Betsy a tremendous amount of pain and distress. John, unable to bear the stress of the situation alone, eventually told his close friend, James Johnston, what was happening to him and his family. Johnston was skeptical of his friend's claim, but he volunteered to come and stay at the Bell home to see what he could make of the so-called ghost. Johnston and his wife arrived at the Bell home late one evening, and preparations were made for them so they may stay the night. As it turns out, the Bell witch was not shy. Johnston and his wife experienced the same abuse that was bestowed upon the Bell family. Their covers were repeatedly torn off them, and they were beaten by the invisible entity. The witch was the cause of much anguish, not just for the family, but also those associated with the family. When Betsy got old enough to marry, she took interest in a man named Joshua Gardner. 
The two began dating and eventually became engaged. For whatever reason, the witch despised Gardner. Any time that Gardner and Betsy were on the Bell property together, the ghosts would verbally taunt the couple and even physically assault them. The ghost would also pester Betsy about the marriage while Gardner was not present, warning her that marrying Gardner would end badly. This would eventually lead to Betsy calling off the engagement. As much as the witch hated Gardner, her worst enemy was undoubtedly John Bell. The witch's favorite person to torture in the Bell house was John Bell. In his old age, John would often fall ill, but the ghost would not let John rest. She would poke, scratch, and hit John so he could not sleep when he was in these states of illness. All of this occurred while she would gleefully express her contempt for John loudly enough for the whole house to hear. On the morning of December 20th, 1820, John Bell was found dead in his bed. A couple nights before, John had complained of feeling ill and went to bed and never recovered. The morning of his death, a strange vial containing an unknown black liquid was found in a cupboard near his bed. One of John's sons gave a drop of the liquid to the family cat and it died instantly. Upon the cat's death, the witch's disembodied voice laughed and exclaimed, I gave old Jack a big dose of that last night which fixed him. In a fit of rage, John's son immediately threw the container in the fireplace. The fire roared and shot out a large puff of smoke. His funeral was one of the largest that the small Tennessee county that John called home had ever hosted. As John was placed in the ground, mourners began hearing laughing and singing that had no explainable source. After John's death, all was quiet on the Bell estate for a little while. A few months passed and the ghost returned. She began speaking to John's wife, proclaiming that she would return in seven years. She kept her promise and again began tormenting the Bell family, particularly focusing on John Bell Jr. She again would soon announce her departure and vow to return in 107 years to torment those who remained of the Bell family. That year would have been 1935, and the closest living descendant was a physician named Dr. Charles Bailey Bell. It is undocumented whether or not Dr. Bell received his visit. Today, not much is left of the old Bell estate. The popular spot to go and search for the witch is a cave on the Bell property. Cameras and other electronic equipment are known to malfunction in this area. Cameras particularly will return photos that have mists, orbs, or humanoid-shaped splotches that appear in the foreground of the pictures. Many claim that the Bell Witch never really left the Bell Estate, but instead dwells in this cave. feeling was more horrifying to a soldier in the Civil War than the realization deep into a charge against the enemy that the assault was doomed. Such was the case for the scores of Union men who surged towards Stonewall Jackson's forces at the Second Battle of Bull Run in August of 1862. With Jackson's men dug in along a railroad grade, the Union foot soldiers were literally fighting an uphill battle. The distance they had to traverse proved too great, and the enemy's rifle muskets too accurate for success to be feasible. 
chaotically and desperately, they turned tail as unrelenting gunfire continued to cut them down. From the SmithsonianMag.com website, an article by Ryan P. Smith. Newly unearthed Civil War bones speak silently to the grim aftermath of battle. When the shooting was over, dead and wounded Yankee troops littered the approach. Confederate losses were heavy as well, but Jackson's men had held their ground. The next day, Union Major General John Pope followed up with another ill-fated assault on Jackson's position and his misreading of a tactical retreat of several rebel units at Groveton caused troops under the command of Union General Fitz John Porter to fall prey to an artillery trap. As Confederates under James Longstreet launched a massive 25,000-man counterattack, Union forces had no choice but to evacuate as quickly as possible. This result was in many ways a replay of the first Battle of Bull Run, another high-casualty Confederate victory that had forced a hasty Union retreat from the same location just 13 months earlier. Second Bull Run was a far bloodier loss for the Union, though, notwithstanding some astute rearguard tactics during the Bluecoats' escape. Today, the battlefield near Manassas, Virginia is a protected site under the purview of the National Park Service. Site policy is to let lie the countless bones swallowed by the land. The goal of park personnel is to preserve the region, not disrupt it. But in late 2015, in the process of clearing a narrow trench for a utility project, personnel inadvertently unearthed what would prove to be an archaeological treasure trove. The finds were miscellaneous bone fragments, which park-affiliated experts in Maryland took to be human. To confirm this, they listed the help of longtime Smithsonian collaborator Doug Owsley, lead physical anthropologist at the National Museum of Natural History. Once it settled that these were indeed human bones, Owsley and his colleague, physical and forensic anthropologist Carrie Brulheide, painstakingly reassembled the bones in their lab within the museum on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. One bone in particular, an incomplete distal left femur found in more than ten separate pieces, leapt out at them. Cleanly sawn, the find piqued the pair's curiosity. Knowing this is a Civil War battlefield, Brulad says, the first thing we think about is an amputation. Owsley and Brulide soon had much more to go on. Additional scouting in the area of the first find turned up a human excavated pit dug a single foot deep containing seven additional limbs and two virtually complete skeletons. One was missing its skull, likely due to farming activity during the years before the site became a national park. Owsley and Brulheide set about doing what they do best piecing together the story behind the bones. First, we had to determine whether this was first or second Manassas, Owsley says. There were two battles fought on this property. To help them assess the evidence, Owsley and Brulide corresponded with Park Superintendent Brandon Bees. The location of the pit suggested the second battle, but it was two subtle aspects of the bones within that led Bees and his fellow park historians to reach an ironclad conclusion. 
For one, one of the skeletons was found with small metallic discs clustered near its shoulder. Bees and his colleagues confirmed that these were buttons, and not just any buttons, but buttons characteristic of an official Union sack coat. At the time of the first Battle of Bull Run in 1861, troop uniforms were provincial and varied significantly. Union sack coats, similar to the one that this soldier had been buried in, were only in common use during the second battle. Even more persuasive evidence came in the form of a severely fractured femur in which a bullet was lodged. Bees and his team could identify the source of the deformed bullet as an infield rifle musket. That's a powerful clue, Owsley explains, because the Confederates are using infields at Second Manassas. The British imported firearms would not have been available to the rebels in time for the first battle. Owsley and Brulade confirmed that the bones belonged definitively to Union men rather than Confederates with sophisticated isotopic analysis. By linking the chemical constituency of the bones with diet, the Smithsonian researchers were able to make some very impressive deductions. Oxygen isotopes tell us about their drinking water, Brulite explains, and that varies by region, so we were able to place these men in the northern states. Even after all of this crafty detective work, though, much of the larger mystery remained. Finding two skeletons in the midst of a smattering of isolated limbs was completely unprecedented. That had never been documented before, Brulite says. The batch of limbs from the pit bore the same smooth sawing of the stray femur Owsley and Brulite had rebuilt before its discovery. They soon concluded concretely that these were amputated parts. Owsley explains that a surgeon, highly skilled judging by the precision of the cuts, which Owsley and Brulheide inspected in microscopic detail, would first have run a scalpel around the circumference of the leg at the chosen spot, cutting through tendons to reach the bone. Then, after peeling back the intervening tissue, he would have taken a bone saw to the ruined bone, slicing clean through and often very high up the limb. In dialogue with bees at the Manassas site and with the aid of military medical logs and other primary sources, Owsley and Brulheide pinned down what likely happened. Following the Second Battle of Bull Run, Union battlefield surgeons would have been admitted to the grounds by Confederate gatekeepers, with all but their most rudimentary supplies confiscated. There at the site, surgeons would have hastily operated on soldiers who had been baking in the sun and soaking in the rain without food for days on end. Some of these amputations were probably done in less than 10 minutes, Owsley says. The exactitude of the amputations under the circumstances was striking. Forensically, Owsley says, you can read how the doctor's positioned and how he's cutting through the bone and what pace he's using in different locations. These were done by an experienced surgeon. This was not novice work. Owsley and Brulheide even have a guess as to who the surgeon responsible for these discarded limbs might have been. A cool professional named Benjamin Howard, who went on to tend the wounded of Antietam and the Battle of the Wilderness. We know Howard signed off on most of the leg amputations in the relevant part of the Manassas battleground, Owsley says and we can track at one of the depot stations that he did at least 15 leg amputations. But what of the two full skeletons? Why were those men buried with the severed limbs of their brothers in arms? Owsley says the answer is simple. 
In the early days of the war, before the advent of sophisticated triage, the categories battlefield surgeons relied on were simple. Those worth trying to save by amputation, and those beyond saving. The two men left in the shallow grave with the remains of their peers fell into the latter classification. B's notes that the Union men who died in battle were simply left on the field, though almost all were eventually afforded burials of their own. To illustrate this theory, Owsley reconstructs the story of the man with the infield slug in his femur, a man who was between the ages of 25 and 29 in harrowing detail. He's retreating, withdrawing, Owsley says, based on his knowledge of the ballistics of the bullet and the damage it caused, he's shot in his buttocks area really high, as he's fleeing the Confederates at his back. But this man's is no ordinary wound. Rather, judging by the deformation of the conical rifled bullet the slug went in at an angle embedding itself sideways in the man's upper femur and precipitating a nasty longitudinal fracture down the bone's length the deflection could have been caused because of the cartridge belt he was wearing owsley theorizes when the soldier's foot came down the situation only worsened with the bone snapping completely and bits of it splintering off inside his leg this is just so difficult to treat says owsley no buttons suggestive of trousers were found with the skeleton, Owsley continues. So what probably happened is he's still alive and the surgeon had the pants cut off. They looked at this and said, oh, buddy, and just set him aside. Amputation would have been a no-go. The wound was too high and too messy. They triaged him out and said, put him under that shade tree. Bees says the complete skeletons of the two men will be reinterred in Arlington National Cemetery in recognition of their service and sacrifice. He is eager to tell the story of the skeletons and amputated limbs formerly on the Manassas grounds for visitors. These latest specimens and narratives now have a place in Owsley's vast archaeological database, which he has been building upon for decades with cases ranging from early America to the modern day. We're looking at 400 years of American history, he says. History that's not necessarily recorded in the history books. It's recorded in the bones. Pride cometh before getting eternally screwed in the afterlife particularly when one goes about mucking with Mother Nature's preferred geography. The mighty Mississippi River flows about 2,320 miles from Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico, and for much of the written historical record has pretty much done whatever it wanted. Of course, when we realized its value as a major commercial artery, us greedy little tool-making monkeys started looking for the means to make a better mousetrap, deliberately engineering alterations to the course of the river so we could make our money a little faster. Geoengineering is all fun and games until someone loses an eye. Undaunted, we nonetheless recklessly go about blowing holes in mountains, digging canals, and changing watercourses, because after all, nature has no notion of civil engineering or convenience, and its concept of urban planning is at best rather slapdash Thus, we feel obligated to get our hands dirty and make some adjustments to the landscape, despite the obvious existential risk in pissing off fickle nature spirits and river gods. 
In the 19th century, some savvy but reckless fellow in the nascent equivalent of the Army Corps of Engineers came to the conclusion that the bend in the Mississippi between Angola Landing and Tunica Landing in West Felicia Parish, Louisiana, was just too darn long by about 20 miles. I mean, having to navigate a somewhat treacherous and lengthy bend in the river cuts into the captain's happy hour. Gregarious little critters that we are, the luminaries of the state of Louisiana decided to straighten things out a bit, literally. Now, cutoffs were not a new thing, as the same thing had been tried unsuccessfully a little farther north at the Shreve Cutoff. This, and the warnings of savvy hydraulic engineers went unheeded, and excavation of a newer, straighter channel proceeded apace. Cutoffs, as proposed by hydraulic riders, are not applicable to large rivers like the Mississippi. Their effects, when applied to a single bend of that river, have been accurately measured upon the Red River Cutoff and the Raccourci Cutoff, and also twice calculated analytically. The final result proves indisputably that they are absolutely pernicious because they reduce the height above the cutoff only by increasing it below, and thus save one part of the valley at the expense of another part. Well, let people downriver worry about their own problems. Unfortunately, the engineers didn't do their homework. The Scottish geologist Sir Charles Lyell happened to be gallivanting about the United States at the time picking up rocks and had a skeptical view of the Raccourci Cutoff. Proceeding up the river, we soon passed Bayou Sarah on our right hand and came to the isthmus called the Raccourci Cutoff, across which a trench nine feet deep has been dug in the hope that the Mississippi would sweep out a deep channel. This cutoff, should it ever become the main channel, would enable a steamer to reach in one mile a point to gain which now costs a circuit of 20 miles and two and a half hours. Unfortunately, when they cleared the forest in this spot, the soil of the new canal was found to consist of a stiff blue clay, straightened by innumerable roots of trees, and in the flood of 1845, the surplus waters of the Mississippi poured through the cut with great velocity yet it failed to deepen it materially. Of course, if you want to accumulate bad karma related to your construction project, it doesn't hurt to have a murder or two associated with it. The cutoff had basically created Raccourci Island in the middle of the Mississippi, with the old Raccourci River to the west and the Raccourci Cutoff to the east. The new cutoff shortened the navigation channel by 19 miles, but failed to bring much improvement in the reaches above. Raccourci Island was the scene of what federal authorities called a horrible murder during the Civil War. When the commander of the Union vessel, the Nymph, went ashore at the island, he was surprised and killed by a Confederate force in the area. Four Union gunboats were sent to Raccourci and the Union men landed and destroyed corn, sugar, molasses, storehouses, and everything else that they could find in the vicinity that might be rebel property. This was nobody's happy place, and apparently their public relations efforts fell a bit short since the first steamboat to head down towards the Raccourci Cutoff had not been informed that the cutoff actually existed. With a whole lot more sandbars and shallower water than the old Raccourci River, this was a recipe for disaster. The Raccourci Cutoff, 69.7 meters, a 19-mile shortcut in the Mississippi, was made in 1948. The old riverbed was named Raccourci, French, shortened, 
Old River, and the island formed Rakusi Island. It is now uninhabited and is a popular hunting ground. According to local belief, the ghost of an old steamboat haunts the cutoff. On the night the river changed its course, a boat entered the old channel in fog and rain. Hitting a sandbar, it backed off, only to hit another. Enraged by these untimely obstructions, the pilot began to curse the boat, the crew, and the treacherous river. At the top of his voice, he shouted that he'd be damned if he cared whether the boat got out or stayed in the bend until doomsday. His wish was granted. Trapped forever in the cutoff, the old paddle wheeler can be heard on foggy nights chugging back and forth, the signal bell jangling and the pilot cursing. No less than Mark Twain spoke with many Mississippi Riverboat captains who assured him that the unfortunate vessel was stuck in a navigational purgatory, doomed to eternally haunt the treacherous shallows of the old Raccourcy. He recorded a version of the tale in his Life on the Mississippi. It was said that a boat came along here in the night and went around the enormous elbow the usual way, the pilots not knowing that the cutoff had been made. It was a grisly, hideous night, and all shapes were vague and distorted. The old bend had already begun to fill up, and the boat got to running away from mysterious reefs and occasionally hitting one. The perplexed pilots felt a swearing and finally uttered the entirely unnecessary wish that they might never get out of that place. As always happens in such cases, that particular prayer was answered and the others neglected. So to this day, that phantom steamer is still budding around in that deserted river trying to find her way out. More than one grave watchman has sworn to me that on drizzly, dismal nights, he's glanced fearfully down that forgotten river as he passed the head of the island and seen the faint glow of the specter steamer's lights drifting through the distant gloom and heard the muffled cough of her skate pipes and the plaintive cry of her leadsman. I have a theory that nature abhors redundancy. For example, if you name a mountain, 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 you're just asking for avalanches, volcanic cataclysms, or various and sundry retributional acts levied upon you for unoriginality. In French, raccourci simply means shortcut. Therefore, unsuspecting folks deliberately named this particular straightening of the Mississippi shortcut, shortcut. I mean, geez, those celestial critters out there expect you to at least put a little effort into your naming conventions, or risk a smiting. Or, perhaps the name was an apt reference to the French phrase, Don Siracursi d'une vie, in this abridgment of life. That is, a raccourci is a thing seen, or heard, or told on a smaller scale, or in a smaller proportion. Fair warning from the god of existential ennui and bad branding. As Henry David Thoreau said, Nature is full of genius, full of the divinity, so that not a snowflake escapes its fashioning hand. Consequently, we should expect a little resentment when we get in there with spades and picks and try to bend the landscape to our will. And for God's sake, at least come up with a good name. Voting booths aren't spaces that voters give much thought. You're in, you vote, you're out. That's how it's meant to be. 
They're designed for quick exits. One 19th century law stipulated an eight-minute limit for booth use if all were occupied. But their unobtrusive nature is a relic of a major controversy in American democracy. When the United States made the controversial switch to a secret ballot, we needed a place to cast them. Listeners, this is a little bit of a topical story titled Voting Booths Were a Radical 19th Century Reform to Stop Election Fraud. And this is from the atlasobscura.com website. It's by Sarah Lasko. Back in the 19th century, Election Day in America worked differently than it does now. There was even more drama than there is today. There were no official ballots. Political parties printed their own party tickets. Some states had standardized printing rules, but in other places, voters could write down the names of whomever they wanted to vote for. Kentucky voted by voice almost to the end of the 1800s. When parties printed up their own tickets, each ballot listed the party's candidates for all the seats at stake. Most voters accepted the pre-selected slate rather than the candidates that most impressed them. There were measures one could take against an undesirable candidate, though, such as physically cutting his name out of the party ticket. Polling places might be set up in private homes or sod house saloons. Usually, there was some separation between the election officials and the crowd of voters, but there was no privacy. Partisans corralled people to the polls to cast their party tickets and keep other parties' voters away, using fists, knives, guns, any effective means. Voting could mean risking your life. In the mid-1800s, 89 people died trying to get to the polls. By the 1880s, ballot reformers were looking for a new way to run elections, one that would wrench some control away from parties and limit vote-buying and other fraudulent practices. They found it in Australia. Since the 1850s, Australian states had been pioneering a different method of electing leaders. They let people vote in secret. This system used official ballots and provided space for people to vote without anyone knowing who they had chosen. With no way of verifying who a voter had actually cast a ballot for, parties had less power to coerce or bribe people. After a close and contentious American presidential run in 1884, when Grover Cleveland won New York, then allocated the most electoral votes of any state by just more than 1,000 votes, American states started seeing the appeal. In 1888, Massachusetts was the first state to adopt the Australian ballot system, but it was followed quickly by Indiana, Rhode Island, Wisconsin, Tennessee, Minnesota, Washington, New York, and other states. Under these new systems, states had to provide voters with voting booths and figure out what those should look like. One county in Ohio, for instance, considered buying pre-made iron booths before settling on cheaper wooden stalls. Often, the ballot reform laws specified in detail what voting booths should look like and how they should be designed and deployed. New York's law required at least one voting booth, three feet square, with walls six feet high, for every 50 voters in a district. The booths had to have four sides, with a front working as a door, and a shelf at a convenient height for writing that was to be stocked with pens, ink, blotting paper, and pencils. Over the next century, states tweaked the design of their voting booths little by little. Sometimes the changes were meant to accommodate new technologies. In New York, which used giant lever machines, for instance, booths were expansive and usually installed against the wall. 
As electronic voting systems were developed, machine manufacturers started designing bespoke booths to fit their particular devices. Some of the changes in booth design were just meant to make setup easier and simpler. By the middle of the 20th century, it was more common for booths to be fronted by curtains than by heavy wooden doors. By the 1980s, freestanding metal stations had come into vogue. Each state developed its own quirky requirements. New Hampshire had an archaic state law that the booth's curtains had to extend down to the ankle, says Hollister Bundy, who works at Inclusion Solutions, a company that sells voting booths. Most states were happy to have shorter curtains, reaching down to about a person's thigh, so for many years there was one curtain for New Hampshire voting booths and another for every other state that wanted it. The state has since changed the law. Today, one of the primary concerns for the designers of voting booths is to make sure there are accessible options that meet the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Help America Vote Act, passed after the election controversy of 2000. Other than that, there's no centralized requirement for voting booth design. Each state has its own rules, and often it's up to county clerks and other election officials to make sure voters have a place to vote in private. Are you pleased as punch when you go to the movies to see a blockbuster? Many expressions used innocuously every day have ominous roots in things like prison punishment, racism, and physical harm. When using them in the future, it might be worth considering where they came from. This is from the website thevintagenews.com. This article is entitled Six Everyday Phrases with Sinister Beginnings. And it's by Ian Harvey. A baker's dozen. Although a baker's dozen seems generous today, its origins are actually due to attempts to cheat customers. In England during the 13th century, bakers were notorious for baking skimpy loaves of bread in an effort to turn a bigger profit. However, the king at the time, Henry III, was so frustrated by the problem that he introduced the assize of bread and ale a law that standardized the size of a loaf. According to Business Insider, the punishment for skimping customers was to lose a hand. In order to ensure that they kept both their hands, bakers started adding the 13th loaf to the dozen as insurance. If any of the loaves were a bit short, the extra loaf would make up for it. Blue Blood This phrase has its origins in the racism of medieval Spain. After centuries of Moorish rule over the country, many families had intermarried with darker-skinned Muslims as well as the Jews. However, those staunchly Christian Castilian families that had kept their blood pure saw themselves as superior, and the phrase was coined to refer to the fact that their veins could easily be seen through their skin. Eventually, the phrase moved on to describe old aristocratic families in 19th century Victorian England but by this time, as Five Courts, A Personal and Natural History of Blood, by Bill B. Hayes mentions, the racist implications were gone, but the notion of superiority persisted. As pleased as punch. 
This phrase refers to the English puppet show called Punch and Judy that dates from the 17th century. Although more storylines have been created, in the original show, Punch, who is quite hideous, beats everyone else in the puppet show to death, including his wife, his infant son, and a policeman. Throughout the carnage, he would laugh and say, that's the way to do it. This gruesome plot led to the phrase being coined in the early 19th century. The basic plot, although slightly less dark, and the catchphrase persisted in English seaside Punch and Judy booths throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. Meeting a Deadline A deadline originally referred to a line or fence situated in the perimeter of a Civil War prison fence that marked the point at which if a prisoner crossed or even touched, they would be shot dead, no questions asked. The deadline was used in many prisons during the Civil War, but came to represent the mistreatment of Union soldiers during the trial of Henry Wurz, the prison keeper at the infamous Andersonville prison. Conditions at Andersonville were atrocious, and his publicized trial which led to his eventual hanging, brought the public's attention to the phrase. By the 19th century, deadline was used in a printing context, denoting the part of a page near the edge where text would no longer print properly. In the early 20th century, it began to be used in any context where there was a strict line that could not be crossed. Eventually, through journalism, it became to be known in the context that we know it today as a time limit treadmill. Another term with prison connotations, a treadmill was originally used as a form of punishment in prisons during the Victorian era. In the 1800s, English civil engineer Sir William Cubitt invented a clever device for harnessing a readily available source of power, convicts. There were two variations. The treadwheel worked just like a giant hamster wheel, but turned by human labor. The treadmill had convicts treading paddles fixed on the outside of a large cylinder, so much like a modern stair climber machine, but with no emergency stop button. Attached to a millstone, the treadmill was a way for prisoners to be employed in eight-hour shifts, and Oscar Wilde was even made to work at one when he was in prison in 1895. Eventually, prison reform banned treadmills, but in the 1950s, the term made a comeback during a fitness craze and was given to the machine with a belt on a constant loop we know today. Blockbuster During World War II, entire city blocks could be completely destroyed by a single bomb. These bombs, called cookies, weighed 4,000 pounds or more and measured 6 feet in length. Due to their destructive power, they also became known as blockbusters. The phrase blockbuster was expanded to include contexts not related to actual bombs as early as a year after the war, and swiftly evolved to mean something big and exciting. By the mid-1950s, the term was being used for movies that grossed over $2 million at the box office. Twenty centuries ago, as the story goes, 
Judas Iscariot sold out Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Half a century ago, in Sioux City, a different type and species of Judas sold out its friends frequently for an undetermined amount of cigarettes. From the SiouxCityJournal.com, a story titled, Untold Story of the Stockyards, Judas Goats. And this story is by Mason Doctor. Greg Dunn, a retired vice president at IBP Incorporated Tyson Foods, held a part-time job at the old Swift Meatpacking Plant as a college student in the mid-1960s. He remembers the so-called Judas Goats well. As a tale of life, death, betrayal, and tobacco-loving animals in Sioux City's fabled stockyards. Sioux City's long-closed meatpacking plants, Cootie, Swift, and Armor, operated in multi-story buildings with the top floor reserved for slaughter. The idea was that gravity, with the help of chutes, would bring the meat and all leftovers to the lower floors for further processing and or disposal. The animals had to be led up to that floor via fire escape-like ramps on the outside of the buildings. For hogs and cows, walking up the ramps was no issue. You could drive the hogs up the steps, you could drive the cattle, but you couldn't drive the sheep, Dunn said. This was because the sheep were, perhaps wisely, afraid of walking up into an enclosed area they couldn't see well. What was a worker at Swift or Armor to do with these animals? The sheep refused to trust the humans who tried to lead them up there. The meat packers needed an inside agent of some sort, an animal that the sheep could trust as a leader, which could convince them to walk up to the killing floor. Into that role stepped the Judas goats. Judas goats would lead the sheep up the ramps, and the sheep had no problem following an animal they trusted. And if they hesitated, he'd look back and he'd bleat and encourage them, and he'd walk them all the way up, Dunn said. And then as he got to the top, there was a little indent like a closet without a door. He'd step aside, and then the sheep would just keep going, and they'd go right into the kill floor. But don't judge the Judas goats too harshly, for they developed a taste for something only the stockyards workers would give them. After a Judas goat had completed his devilish task and the sheep were facing death, he was rewarded with Lucky Strike or Camel cigarettes. And then they'd give him a cigarette, and he just loved tobacco. He'd eat that cigarette, and that was his incentive. Well, actually, he was addicted to nicotine is what he was, Dunn said. These special goats were a valuable asset for the stockyards. Without a Judas goat, getting sheep up to the kill floor would become problematic, if not completely impossible, which meant that the workers had to be prepared in the event of an incapacitated or dying goat. One day I came, and there was another goat tied to the Judas goat, like with a two-foot rope, Dunn said. That was his apprentice. After spending a while tied to the elder Judas goat, walking up and down the stairs with him and eating cigarettes alongside him, the next generation of Judas Goat would be ready for service. Longtime Sioux City photographer George Lindblade, who, like Dunn, spent some time around the Judas Goats, said that the use of these specially trained animals, I would use that term loosely, only ended when Sioux City's venerable old meat business collapsed in the latter half of the 20th century. I don't think they ever stopped using them, he said.
That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.